G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. So, Tim, last week we read some flood stories. They were interesting and, and a bit weird, which is also how people describe us. Uh, but isn't it enough to just read the Bible? What, what was the benefit of having read the Atrahasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh? Well, there are plenty of good reasons to read other flood stories from the ancient Near East, and not just because they're entertaining. I think, for me, one of the major benefits to an awareness of other flood stories is the knowledge that the biblical story didn't just spring out of thin air. Regardless of what you think about physical evidence for the flood, the stories from different periods of time, different languages, and obviously different authors and points of view, they all come together to demonstrate a shared cultural awareness of this important narrative in ancient history. And that should help us to understand the part that this narrative plays in human culture and civilization. It isn't just a historical record. It's a story that carries meaning and significance, and that should drive us toward the search for that meaning and significance beyond simply an empirical line of questioning. And I say that because you'll notice that nobody in any ancient culture offers a historical or scientific defense of their flood narrative. The assumptions at play are that there was a flood, and as far as anybody could tell, the only survivors were the people in the boat. No one's asking the question about the extent of the floodwaters. Nobody's trying to argue for or against the reality of the flood event. The closest you'll get to anything of that nature is what we saw uh, in the Book of Jubilees, where they present a date for the flood, which is there in order to prop up the major narrative that they're trying to tell, not for the sake of proving the flood. And that text is also far removed from the original context of the composition of these ancient stories. Yeah, that's that's true. So as far as ancient people concerned, the reality of the flood was just a given, really. Yep. Now, people often fall for the trap of thinking of ancient people as primitive or less intelligent, but when you look at the wisdom of the ancients in the way that they simply found value in the story, rather than trying to prove it, they really make us modern people look like idiots. The story is the story. The story is not the basis for all kinds of endeavours to back up the story. The story is told to share truth, and as a listener, when you receive that story, you're expected to learn not to ask irrelevant questions. Unfortunately, it is human nature to miss the point more often than not. And it seems that our modern culture has made an entire industry around missing the point, especially when it comes to scripture. And nowhere is that more evident to me than when I look at the effect that 19th century higher criticism has had on the church and on evangelicals in particular. And I'm not going to go down that whole flat earth rabbit hole again. For those who came in late, you need to listen to season one of the show to get the lowdown on that. But the other great benefit of reading other ancient Near Eastern flood literature is that it's going to help you understand the claims being made in academic circles concerning the message of the biblical flood, because the nature of the biblical message is going to be influenced by how we think about the way that the story came to be in the form that we have it. And that's why last week I mentioned the compositional history of the biblical flood story. Because if it becomes evident that the biblical story has experienced change over time, and the popular assumption is that this is the case, then questions must be asked about the messaging of the story and how that has also evolved. What can we learn about the story and the changes in the story and what those changes mean? What's the impact of that on our theology? So the claim from proponents of biblical higher criticism in the academy is that the biblical flood story is a late composition of at least two different original source texts. 
which have been spliced together into a single narrative. And those original sources were themselves heavily influenced by different Mesopotamian flood traditions. Now, we're not talking about direct borrowing or plagiarism or that kind of thing. Nobody is seriously suggesting that the biblical flood account is a rip-off of those stories that we were reading last week when we looked at Gilgamesh and Atrahasis. There aren't any direct quotes, and most of the small details don't line up. But what these source critics are proposing is that two independent flood stories with a heavy Mesopotamian influence were combined by one author or redactor into a single narrative. I might just add that I don't really have a problem with an exilic period composition, and I don't mind the idea of the influence of Babylonian literature, as stated by Daniel chapter 1. I just think that the composition of the biblical flood story is a much more masterfully created work than a patchwork quilt of other people's flood stories, which is what the source-critical approach presents. So on that hypothesis, at one point, you have a scribe who is faced with the task of composing the biblical text, and he has these two manuscripts to work with, and he's got to preserve both of them while presenting only one story. But why would anybody think that that's the way the biblical story was put together? Yeah, you might be thinking. Why would anybody think that that's the way the biblical story was put together? And what it comes down to is textual analysis. People have looked at the flood story and seen that there are certain repetitions in the text. There are details that get included more than once. There are certain ambiguities. Some things look like the events are out of sequence in the text. And it looks like more than one person is talking about God because of the different names they use to refer to him. People have looked at the flood story and seen that there are certain repetitions in the text. There are details that get included more than once. Some things look like the events are out of sequence in the text. And it looks like more than one person is out of sequence in the text. Sorry, I'm playing with you. So they've proposed that at least two different authors must have presented their own original flood story, which was later massaged into a single document. And scholars will refer to those two authors in typical academic fashion as P for priestly and J for Yahwist or non-P. I still don't see why you'd put two stories together instead of just using one, though. Well, if you thought both stories were inspired, you'd try to preserve both of them. By mashing the two together, that doesn't sound like the way a person with a high view of Scripture would handle the text. That's like in Robin Hood, where he shoots a second arrow at the bullseye and destroys the first arrow in the process. He split Robin's arrow in twain! Sorry, I can't take Robin Hood seriously since Mel Brooks made men in tights. Oh, master, you lost your arms in battle. Anyway, I'm inclined to agree with you there, Chris. But before I offer any further comment on the issues around the documentary hypothesis, I want to read you the biblical story according to the two separate accounts proposed. But how are you going to do that? I know. We'll fox them. Uh, No. First, I'm going to read from the priestly source. Then I'm going to read from the non-priestly source. Okay, so here we go. This is the priestly version, so-called, from Genesis, and it begins in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with Elohim. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in Elohim's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And Elohim saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And Elohim said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. 
make it with lower, second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that Elohim commanded him. Now we skip to chapter 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And then we don't like verse 7. So chapter 7, verse 8, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as Elohim had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And now we skip to 7.13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in, as Elohim had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now then we skip to 7.19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. And then this author doesn't like 7.23, so we'll go to 7.24. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And into chapter 8. But Elohim remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And Elohim made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And now we go to chapter 8, verse 13, just the first half of the verse. We don't like the second half. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Going to verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then Elohim said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. 
Chapter 9, verse 1. And Elohim blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then Elohim said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And Elohim said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between Elohim and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Elohim said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And then we skip down to the end of chapter 9, verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, so that's the flood story according to the alleged P source. I wonder if you noticed the amount of repetition within that text. For example, the mention of the waters prevailing three times. Uh, here's the reading according to the non-P source. So we're about to hear the flood story again, but this time in different words. From chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of Elohim saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days, shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of Elohim came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Now we skip to chapter 7 verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that Yahweh had commanded him. Chapter 7 verse 7 And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Verse 12, And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Verse 17, The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Now we go to chapter 8, verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. 8.13b And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Chapter 8, verse 20 Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the Elohim of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May Elohim enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. First, I want to offer some observations on the priestly source. The idea is that the priestly source is more concerned with calendar and dates and things like that for liturgical purposes. And all the dates in the flood account coincide with Israelite festival observances. You'll notice that the account of the water prevailing for 150 days is preserved. But the 40 days and 40 nights of rain does not occur in this source. Apparently that is seen as a contradiction and one of the problems that this hypothesis claims to solve. The priestly source includes the part of the story where the animals come two by two into the ark. Again, the idea that the animals were separated into clean and unclean and then brought into the ark by sevens or in pairs respectively is viewed as a contradiction or a problem that this hypothesis proposes a solution for. I should point out that there are other ways that different commentators have divided these two sources. It's interesting that there is no exact consensus on where these divisions lie. It's also interesting that one of the primary reasons that the documentary hypothesis arose in the first place was that it was noted that different names for God appear at different points in the text. The idea is that of the different authors who contributed their source material, some of them used different names for God, hence the four major sources of the Pentateuch. The Yahwist in German, it starts with J. The Elohist, who always uses Elohim. The Deuteronomist, who is primarily concerned with the law. And the priestly author, who is generally concerned with matters of religious observance. 
obviously those last two are concerned more with the subject matter than with particular naming conventions. But getting back to the names of God issue, Yahweh and Elohim both appear in both sources, and sometimes even in the same sentence. It sounds like this theory doesn't really stand on solid ground when it comes to the idea that different authors use different names of God, though. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Unfortunately, when it comes to the documentary hypothesis, the people who are pushing that view are quite happy to claim late interference with the text anytime somebody presents something that doesn't agree with their argument. Basically, if you show them any part of the text that appears to have inconsistencies with their own view, they're going to say that somebody changed it from the original version of the text. So while I agree that you could pick apart the entire documentary hypothesis by looking at inconsistencies like the names of God in different parts, unfortunately, the proponents of this view aren't going to listen. So you mentioned that different parts of the flood story seem to have contradictory details, like the 40 days versus the 150 days, for example. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I guess the first thing to do with that is to ask the question, are these really contradictory details? What do you mean? Well, let's think about it. We're told it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. We're also told that the floodwaters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. I don't think those details are necessarily contradictory. It doesn't say that there was rain falling for 150 days. And it doesn't say that the floodwaters covered the earth for only 40 days. These are actually very different statements and they're not intended to communicate the same thing. That'd be like me saying I poured water in the bathtub for five minutes and then I soaked in the tub for an hour. Obviously, I wasn't filling the bath for an hour and I didn't spend only five minutes in the tub. There are two things happening here. First, the bath water's poured in. That takes five minutes. Then the water remains there for an hour. There's no more water being added during that hour. Then I'm going to pull out the plug and let that water drain out, and that's probably going to take five minutes too. At the end of that five minutes, the water will be gone, and you'd have to be an idiot to confuse the five minutes of filling with the five minutes of draining the water out. Like you'd just sit there in the bath pouring water in while it goes down the drain instead of filling the tub. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, you'd have the least enjoyable bath in history, or you'd have a flood of biblical proportions in your house. Yeah. So the other major issue with the documentary hypothesis is the alleged repetition of certain things. Because it sounds like Noah goes into the ark twice. And that really makes it look like there are two stories being put together here. But wouldn't the author, if he was putting two stories together, just pick certain parts so that he isn't repeating himself? It's funny you should say that because that's going to be what the proponents of the documentary hypothesis are going to say about certain details that are missing from the respective sources. But they won't be saying that about the parts that seem to appear twice. So as an example, the entry into the ark appears to be repeated, but only one source mentions the exit from the ark. When you ask the question about the exit from the ark, the response is, the redactor wanted to preserve only one telling of that event, and he has cleverly and intentionally omitted the other. When you ask the same question about the entry into the ark, it's an oversight from a clumsy redactor who didn't realise he was putting it in twice. Because it turns out that both times the entry is mentioned, it's from the same source. Once again, there's an excuse for every inconsistency in the theory, even if they won't allow any potential inconsistencies they see in the text. Okay, but what about the messages being presented in these two stories? Are they different? Yeah, well, it would seem that the priestly source is more concerned with violence as the reason that God sent the flood, whereas the non-priestly material is concerned with the interbreeding of the sons of God with the daughters of man and the resulting wickedness or depravity of mankind as the reason. Somehow it hasn't occurred to them that it could be both things, or one leading to the other. I just think that's a really arbitrary division there without any good reason for being. 
So what do we do about those repetitions in the text? And if they aren't from two different sources, what's the point of the repetition? What's the point of the repetitions? What's the point of the repetitions? It's a good question. But again, I'm going to challenge it because the assumption is that there's something wrong if there's repetition of phrases or ideas in the text. And I don't think we need to have a problem with it. And the other issue is that even with the flood story divided into P and non-P sources, there are repetitions within the sources. So clearly the intent of combining the narratives couldn't have been the elimination of repetition. The alleged combination of the two sources doesn't eliminate repetition but adds to it. I think we need to consider that repetition is actually an important structural element in the story as a whole. Think of it more as symmetry. So you're saying the whole flood story is symmetrical. That would actually make it like one of those poems we were talking about last week. We said there was one in Isaiah 14, uh, one in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel story. What was that called? Yeah, you're right, Chris. It's called chiasm. I wrote about this in my book. The flood story is actually a big chiasm, which has Genesis 8 verse 1 at its center. It's the bit where God remembers Noah. Uh, I won't go into all the details of the chiasm here because I did write about it in my book. You can easily find this stuff online. But what, what I will say is that the repetition in the text becomes an element in the poetic composition of the narrative, which makes the whole thing work as a literary unit. In other words, if you're trying to pick the story apart to reconstruct its alleged original sources, then the entire piece fails to function as intended. You're supposed to be reading the story as a chiastic structure. A problem gets introduced, it gets worse, the problem escalates and becomes more severe. Then, at a climactic turning point, God acts, and one by one, every part of the problem is addressed with a resolution. So it turns out that the apparent contradictions in the text and the repetitions found throughout the narrative are actually essential components of the literary structure which make the whole thing work. Unfortunately, our 19th century German friends were quite unaware of that during the heyday of high criticism. All right, let me see if I've got this straight. We know there were two different sources used to compile the biblical flood story because they use different vocabulary, except for when they don't. And the fact that there were two different stories is proved by the fact that there are contradictions in the text which can't be explained except that they can. And the repetitions in the text definitely prove that there were multiple sources used in the making of the text, except when we find repetitions within those sources. Have I got that about right? Yeah, you pretty much hit it on the head there, mate. Let's not forget also that the ancient manuscripts that brought us the earliest flood narratives are also full of repetitions, but that's okay because they're not the Bible and therefore they're inscrutable in the eyes of higher criticism. I think they should all get off their higher horses. It's uh, dangerous up there. (laughs) Yeah. Those facts alone ought to be the final nail in the coffin for the documentary hypothesis, but I've got another one up my sleeve. Another point made by proponents of the source-critical approach is that the separate authors would have had access to different Mesopotamian flood narratives that introduced their writing, hence the differences between the two narratives. The thing is that all of the ancient source material that we know of, which might have influenced the biblical text, can be found in both of these alleged biblical sources. And that includes the Sumerian flood epic. Ah, the Sumerian flood epic. Have we read that one before? No, we haven't. I was kind of saving it. I might read the full thing another time, but for now, I'll just give you the gist of it. Unlike the other flood stories we're familiar with, this one begins with the Sumerian version of the fall of man. So... The mother goddess of the land of Sumer creates mankind and she tells the man he can eat anything he wants from the garden except for this one plant. Very familiar stuff here. 
And, of course, he does the wrong one and eats it anyway. Surprise, surprise. And that leads directly to the flood episode, which is a reaction against the disrespect that the man has shown the gods. It's kind of ironic that the only person mentioned as a survivor of the flood is the guy who stuffed it all up in the first place. And even though the gods were angry with him because of what he did, they still help him to escape the flood. Like the Babylonian flood stories, it's the god Enki who helps the man by revealing the secret of the flood ahead of time. But the famous passage about the reed wall is very different. Most people know that Mesopotamia was home to religious structures known as the ziggurats. Uh, What a lot of people probably don't know is that the top of the ziggurat was flat and on top of it was a small hut made of reeds. And that was the house of the god. This version of the flood story is primarily concerned with the gods themselves and there's very little detail about the material elements of the story. This is purely a religious text. It's pretty much assumed that the audience is so familiar with the actual flood story itself that it hardly bears mentioning. There's a guy, there's a boat, there's a flood. We get no detail at all about the boat. There's not much detail about the flood. Interestingly, the flood lasts for nine months in this story, and you don't get much about the man either. This is the same guy that in other Sumerian texts is known as Zisudra. But what we do learn about him is absolutely fascinating. His name, according to the best-preserved version of the flood story, is Tagtug. He only gets called Zisudra in another related story. I've never heard of that before. What does it, what does it mean? Well, as I mentioned, it's a Sumerian name. It's actually two words put together, tag and tug. Just like the uh, Semitic verbs, you can have the same form of the word and modify it to change the sense of the verb. So what we have here is two different applications of a root verb. The first one, tag, is a word that means to cause to lie down or to bring to rest, usually by means of violent subjugation. You get the Visual picture of a person standing with one foot on the neck of a defeated enemy, or something like that. But then the second word, tug, presents a different take on that verb. It's still associated with the core meaning of the root form, which is rest. But this time it's the kind of rest that one employs in the sense of kingship or the rest of a god in a temple. We've talked about this before. It's got a lot to do with order and authority. So what we see in the combination of these two verbs to form the name tag-tug is the idea of achieving rest from violent subjugation and the restoration of order. That sounds a lot like Noah. Didn't we talk before about how Noah's name means those same two things because of the wordplay that Lamech uses when he names his son Noah? That's exactly right, Chris. And yet when we look at the Atrahasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh, we find no correlation with the meaning of the names given to the flood hero. They give him names like the man from Shurapak, exceedingly wise, or he who found long life. Only the name of the flood hero from the Sumerian flood story has any connection to the name of Noah in the Bible. And I just think that it's interesting that our 19th century German friends don't seem to pick up on that when it comes to their source criticism. Don't you think that if the biblical authors were relying so heavily on Gilgamesh, they might have used the name for Noah that reflects that story? How come they're free to use different names for God, but they don't have different names for Noah? That's a good point. So I think what's really going on here is that the biblical scribes have taken full advantage of the access they had to all kinds of ancient Mesopotamian traditions during their time in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar in the exilic period. But what we see in the biblical flood story is not some half-cocked mishmash of flood stories just thrown together. This is a beautifully crafted work of literature which gives a respectful nod to the earliest stories of human civilization while still managing to flip the bird at Babylonian cultural superiority. They actually take the time to remind the Babylonians of important details of the flood narrative that they left out. 
Most importantly, of course, it preserves the true story of the nature of God's dealings with man in this early period of human prehistory. Getting back to that thing about the ziggurat and the hut made of reeds. In the Sumerian story, the gods are inside the hut on top of the ziggurat when they discuss their plan to bring the flood. And the guy who survives the flood is on the outside. They talk about inducing a sleep on him, which is presumably so they can communicate with him in a dream, but the text doesn't actually tell us that detail. According to the later flood traditions, Enki reveals his plan to the flood hero by talking to him first in a dream and then through the wall of the reed hut. Interestingly, it is the walls of the house that he's instructed to tear down in order to build the boat in those late traditions. We might have thought that it was the flood hero's own house, but in light of the Sumerian material, it seems more likely that he's talking about the house of the gods on top of the cosmic mountain, the ziggurat. I'm going to give you a spoiler here because I'm just too excited to let this wait. We're going to go into this in detail, I promise, but I just wanted to tell you that a careful reading of the biblical flood narrative tells us that the boat was actually made from the walls of houses made of reeds. Not cypress wood, not gopher wood, that's not even a thing. As I say, we're going to talk about it later, but the point is that here in the Bible, God puts the man on the inside of sacred space to preserve him through the flood. That is awesome, and I did not see that coming. Uh, well, I think it's about time we put a pin on this discussion. We'll leave it there for now. What have we got for next week, Tim? Uh, next week, we're going to get into the story of Noah, or more accurately, the Toledot of Noah. So we'll dive deep into the text, as is our want, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of interesting content there. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to that, but right now... I'm looking forward to some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. We got an anonymous question this week, which came to us through the website, giantanswers.com. Don't forget, listeners, you can send in your questions through the website as well. Just go to giantanswers.com and there's a form on the main page there you can fill out and you don't have to leave your name. You can be anonymous, just like the person who asked this question. Yeah, okay. So uh, what's the question? The question is, I was just reading Matthew chapter 24 and Jesus' words about the days of Noah, verses 37 to 39. Uh, verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I was wondering what Jesus meant about the eating and drinking before the flood. I don't see anything in Genesis 6 about eating and drinking. What's going on there? Okay, that's an interesting one. You're right. There is nothing in the biblical text about eating and drinking unless you count the part where Noah has to bring provisions into the ark for him and the animals to eat. But I don't get the sense that Jesus' statement has anything to do with that. What I think Jesus is doing is foretelling at least one future event from the perspective of his immediate audience in that day. And I say that because you could argue that he's referring to the coming destruction by the Romans, which seems quite legitimate in the context of his words about the stones of the temple being thrown down and not one being left upon another uh, earlier in that chapter. You could also argue that he's referring to a future event in the sense of the day of judgment or the day of the Lord. To be fair, you could employ the language of visitation in either of those contexts, if not both. 
I'm not about to split hairs over which possible future event Jesus was referring to because I think there's a fair chance that it was both. But the real thrust of this question is what Jesus meant when he said the days of Noah, considering that he isn't making a direct reference to the story of Noah. Now, you could argue that the marrying and giving in marriage part is lifted from the sons of God pericope in Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4, but you won't get anywhere chasing that eating and drinking language in Genesis. One possibility is that we're not talking about literally eating and drinking. It's not unusual to find this turn of phrase in the Bible in situations where the emphasis is on the people in the story being alive despite the odds being against them. Now, I'll uh, explain what I mean there. If we look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 11, it says, And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And then we go to Acts chapter 10, verse 41. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the idea there is that these people uh, came face to face with God and they were not suddenly struck down by his uh, immense uh, and unbearable glory. Now, uh, while this is a possibility, I'm not sure that it works in this context. As far as the people of the pre-flood world are concerned, in their own minds, they're not really in jeopardy. Remember the whole thing about striving for immortality by means of interaction with the divine. Now, we should also consider that Jesus may have had a different flood story in mind. And since we've been talking about those recently, they should be pretty fresh in our own minds. I guess we could start with the Sumerian flood story, since that's the one in which the name of Noah has some correlation. But reading through it, I don't see any reference to eating and drinking on the part of those who are perishing in that story. Next, we could look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, since that one has the most frequent and easily observed parallels with the biblical flood story. But again, we have no reference to the people who were about to experience the flood partaking in food and drink. That leaves us with Atrahasis. And in this one, we actually do find a reference to eating and drinking. But does it fit the context of the words of Jesus? Let's read a little quote from Atrahasis. He selected and put on board the birds that fly in the sky, cattle of Shakan, wild animals of open country he put on board. He invited his people to a feast. He put his family on board. They were eating, they were drinking. But he went in and out, could not stay still or rest on his haunches. His heart was breaking, and he was vomiting bile. The face of the weather changed. Adad bellowed from the clouds. When Atrahasis heard his noise, bitumen was brought, and he sealed his door. While he was closing up his door, Adad kept bellowing from the clouds. The winds were raging even as he went up and cut through the rope. He released the boat. Okay, so that was a short excerpt from Tablet 3 of the Atrahasis. No doubt you noticed the mention of eating and drinking, but it's the family of the flood hero who were feasting. Does that work with what Jesus had to say? Let's go back to the book of Matthew. All right, so this is chapter 24 from verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 
Another thing you might notice here is the repetition of the phrase, one will be taken and one left. When Jesus says that one will be taken, this isn't a reference to some kind of miraculous escape from judgment. This is a reference to what happens in the context of warfare, such as the invasion of the armies of Rome that overtook Jerusalem. Getting taken away is a bad thing, and the Jewish people know all about being taken away. It is never good. I might just back that up with the words of Daniel in his reference to the armies of Rome bringing destruction upon Jerusalem. This is Daniel 9, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay, so we have Daniel there connecting war and flood with the destruction of Jerusalem, which later occurred in AD 70, and in which many Jews were taken captive and tortured. Again, it is not good when the day of the Lord's visitation arrives and you get taken away. But Jesus also said that some would be left, and indeed there were some preserved in the days of Noah. In fact, if we take the Akkadian version of the story, it was those who were eating and drinking who were preserved through the destruction of the flood, while the biblical story describes the destruction of those who were marrying and giving in marriage. Again, if we consider Jesus' words about the last days and the coming judgment, we find that it is better to be left behind than to be taken. Consider the parable of the wheat and the weeds. This is Matthew 13 from verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now moving down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So those are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 13 and the idea of the wicked being removed carries through to the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 14 from verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Okay, so by now you should have picked up that it really isn't good to be the first removed from this situation. And when we go back to the flood story, we find that those who were marrying and giving in marriage are the ones who were swept away, and all those who were eating and drinking were preserved. I think it would be reasonable to argue that the perspective of the New Testament authors on the practice of eating and drinking may well have been tied to the communion of the saints in Christ. And I think that holds up when we consider that those who were eating and drinking were the only ones who were obedient and who boarded the ark as directed trusting God for their salvation while not knowing what was going to happen. So there you go, anonymous listener. That was my take on what Jesus meant when he referred to the eating and drinking in the days of Noah. Hopefully that answers your question. And you can share your thoughts about that or anything else that we talk about on the show in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook. So check that out when you get a chance. And as they say, join the conversation. All right. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you to all of our listeners, even our anonymous question person. We'll see you next time where we get into the story of Noah. And don't forget, if you've got giant questions, demand giant answers. Indeed. Catch you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already, subscribe. Do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. How's the eggnog? Oh, magnificent. I've managed to uh, find a reliable local source. So (laughs) uh, the panic is over. and rest easy now. Having said that, I was going to get... Uh, a couple of them, the Savo could only get one, but I'll take one over none. Um, so this isn't like from IGA or anything. Um, no, IGA. Yeah, where I am, it's it's kind of out of the way to go to an IGA. Right. Uh, whereas this is a servo which frequently has the cheapest fuel around, so very handy. Win win. I want you to read. I want you. Yeah. Let me try that again. I want to read you. That's better. Now I got it. I want. I still can't do it. <clears throat> but before I offer any further comment on the issues around the documentary hypothesis, I want to read you the, the most articulation I've ever seen in a plastic crocodile. Yeah, it's pretty cool. His tail comes off as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, what you All the legs move and uh, yeah. Cigarettes? Mm. Care for a cigarette? Well, that was epic. Gilgamesh. Literally. Yes. Oh, you know what else is really interesting about that Sumerian flood story?
Um, the 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 guy, the hero, Tag Tug. Mm. Um, <clears throat> after the flood has happened, he becomes a gardener. Oh, okay. Just like Noah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That that is pretty cool. The first of many heat waves. Mm. Everyone's complaining already and acting like it's the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, well, I had a friend, uh, him and his wife had to evacuate their house from bush fires. Ooh, they're the worst ones, the bush fires, because they're very quiet. You don't hear them coming. Nice one. And may your nog be ever-present. Amen. <laughs>